Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If we could bring the house lights up, that would be great. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And as you're turning there, I want us to be thinking about um, a sister church in town. So uh, First Nazarene Church, this is Pastor Bill's last Sunday there. He's going to uh, Michigan to, to be closer to his family. And so uh, the Nazarene Church will be without a, a pastor here. And then also the Rock Assembly of God. Pastor Roger, another good friend of mine, he's going to be leaving next week. So two of our sister evangelical churches in town are going to be pastorless here in the next couple of Sundays. So we want to keep those churches in our hearts and prayers. You know, one of the weaknesses of modern church life, modern evangelicalism, is we don't talk a lot about church history. We're kind of myopic into what's going on right now, and, and we don't learn about those great things that have happened thousands of years ago in church history. But in the 400s, that's a long time ago, the 400s, 400s A.D., there was a controversy. Now, this was right after a lot of the persecution, so around the 400s, the church began to kind of understand and debate and to, to deal with these issues related to theology. And so there were two groups that emerged that were arguing over the nature of Christ. And the first group was a group of Christians in Antioch, and they stressed the humanity of Christ over the deity of Christ. They were big on his humanity. And there was a, a man named Nestorius. He was a later heretical he was a false teacher. He basically divided Christ into two distinct persons. Basically, he said Jesus was literally a son of Mary, but he was also indwelt by another person, the Son of God. So almost like Jesus had a split personality. Highly stressed his humanity, almost as if Jesus was like a, a superhero, an exalted man. The second group was from Alexandria in Egypt. They stressed the deity of Christ over the humanity of Christ. And there was another false teacher that came out of that area called Eutychus, and basically he argued forcefully that Jesus was only divine. He, he had no human nature at all. And so we see this imbalance between, is Jesus only God, or is he only a man? And so what happened in 451 A.D., pastors and theologians and leaders from all over the world met in the city of Chalcedon. Some people call it Chalcedon, but I'm not a Chalcedon. I'm a Chalcedon. That's the way I pronounce it. They met in the city of Chalcedon, and they drafted one of the most important early creeds of the Christian church. It's called the Chalcedonian Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon. And it makes a statement about the deity and humanity of Christ. And so let me read to you from the Chalcedonian Creed. It says, we teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. 
This was a very significant creed in the early church that really put to rest these um, differences and actually false teachings about who Jesus was, these major heresies. And so basically, here's the bottom line of the Chalcedonian Creed. Christ is fully and truly man, and Christ is fully and truly God in the same person, Jesus Christ at the same time. Now, we don't recite the Chalcedonian Creed. When was the last time in church you recited the Chalcedonian Creed? We're more familiar with maybe the Nicene Creed or the, the Apostles' Creed. Now, why do I bring up the Chalcedonian Creed? It teaches something very fundamental. The full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ. Now, we can say, well, that's a creed. That's something that humans made up. Yes, creeds are not on the level with the Bible. The Bible is the sole authority. But in our passage today, Jesus affirms this about himself. And he takes it from an Old Testament passage, Psalm 110. I want you to think about what we've seen the past few months in Luke's gospel. I know we've been traveling through chapters 18 and 19 and 20. Back in chapter 18, remember the blind beggar? Bartimaeus, what did he cry out to Jesus? Son of David, save me. Son of David. And then in chapter 19, what does Jesus do? Jesus rides, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that's why I brought water up here. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You remember on Palm Sunday, he, he rides into Jerusalem on a colt, and the people begin to wave palm branches. And what do they cry out to Jesus? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the King. And then Jesus cleanses the temple in righteous anger. And the religious leaders challenge his authority, and they say, Jesus, who gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. Because Jesus has all authority to do whatever Jesus wants to do. And then he tells the parable of the wicked tenants and how the wicked tenants mistreated the beloved son. And this was a prophecy of what was just going to happen a few days later when the Pharisees and the religious leaders are going to hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified, the beloved son. And then last week, the Sadducees pulled Jesus aside. They asked him that trick question about marriage in heaven. Are you going to be married to seven different wives and all these different things? So in Luke chapter 18 through 20, Luke has revealed to us that Jesus is the son of David. He's the blessed king of Israel. He's the one with authority. He's the beloved son, and he's the resurrection and the life. I want you to remember those terms for Jesus that Luke has been like just kind of driving home the point. He's the son of David. He's the king of Israel. He's the beloved son. He's the one with all authority. Now, in these past few chapters, it seems like everybody's asking Jesus questions. Question after question. They're bombarding Jesus with questions. They're giving him trick questions. They're trying to trip him up. Question after question after question. The religious leaders are just barraging Jesus with questions. But now, the time is over. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. The greatest question. Now, it's a very important question that Jesus asks, and this is not the first time he's asked this question. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, privately when he had his disciples together, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were there with him, and he asked them, who 
do the crowd say I am? This was a private conversation, just with his disciples. Who do people say that I am? The ultimate question, who do people say that I am? But now the scene has shifted. Jesus is in the temple. Remember, this is just days leading up to his crucifixion. He's in the temple in Jerusalem teaching, and he gathers these religious leaders together, and he asks them a question. It's almost like a riddle that they can't quite figure it out. And it's the same question he asks the disciples earlier. Who do you say that I am? That's the greatest question that all of us are going to be faced with. Who is Jesus? So let's pick up in Luke chapter 20 and see the words of Jesus. And we're going to go back to verse 39 where after Jesus answered the question about we saw last week about the resurrection, let's pick up in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. Verse 40, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's a short passage of Scripture, but in verse 40, they're done asking Jesus questions. They've tried to trip him up, he's bested them at every turn, they're done. It's time for Jesus to stop all mouths and for Jesus to turn around and say, the time is done for you guys to ask questions. It's my turn to ask a question. Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whenever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Every mouth may be stopped. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse. He says, how do you know whether someone is a Christian? The answer is that his or her mouth is shut. Jesus gets the last word. Jesus' opinion is the one that counts. Jesus gets to ask the questions. Our mouths are shut, and it's his turn to turn and say, guys, stop asking me questions. It's my turn to ask you the ultimate question. And here's the question. It may seem a little strange to you and me, but remember, these are the religious leaders who knew their Old Testament. So, verse 41, he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, Jesus is going to answer this by quoting Psalm 110. Now, you need to know something about Psalm 110. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. 33 times. There's no other Old Testament passage quoted more often in the New Testament than Psalm 110. So, this is a very important psalm. Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is a coronation hymn. It's a hymn in the Old Testament that was used when God was going to install an earthly king on the throne, like David. So the Lord is going to install a king on the throne of Israel. And so the language is a little confusing here in our English translation. So if you look at Psalm 110.1 that Jesus quotes there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, keep that up there on the slide for a moment. I want you to notice 
The, the word Lord shows up twice there, right? But do you notice a difference, even if you look at it in your own Bible? One is L-O-R-D in all caps. That's the word Yahweh. The second word Lord is not in all caps. It's a different Hebrew word. It's the word Adonai. So there's two different words for Lord in this passage. The first word Lord references God the Father, Yahweh, the, the Lord. The second Lord references an earthly king. It can also mean the beloved son. It's, it, it basically, you can translate it this way. God said to his king, sit at my right hand. God said to his son. Now, in the context of Psalm 110, it's talking about an earthly king, David. The Lord said to his earthly king, I'm installing you on the throne. But Jesus is making this about himself. This is a messianic psalm that points forward to Jesus. Jesus is the future son of David who's going to be installed on the throne as the ultimate king of kings. The father, the Lord, said to his king or his son, sit at my right hand. Or you could say it this way, more literally. Yahweh says to Messiah, sit at my right hand. But notice verse 44. Jesus kind of gives him a riddle there in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he a son? Okay, David wrote this psalm. And David calls the descendant, his descendant, the one that was going to come from his lineage, doesn't call him a son, calls him Lord. That was unheard of. That would have been very confusing to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, because yes, they understood that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and that the Messiah would be, quote-unquote, David's son. But why doesn't David call him my son? David calls him my Lord. So David sees that his descendant is not going to just be an earthly king, but his descendant's going to be the ultimate Messiah. So what is Jesus doing here? What's Jesus revealing about himself? This is kind of cryptic. It's kind of like a riddle. Jesus reveals three truths about who he truly is. Three truths here. Here's truth number one. Jesus is fully and absolutely a man. He's fully or truly or absolutely a man. Jesus is the physical descendant of David. Now, everyone knew this from their Old Testament. Everyone knew that the Messiah would be a physical descendant from the lineage of David. What did God promise David? It's called the Davidic Covenant. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that there would be a future son who would sit on the throne. So God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David, you're going to have a future lineage. Now, you're going to have a lineage of kings, but there's ultimately going to be this future king that's going to come, that's going to sit on the throne. It's going to be an eternal throne. And so the Jewish people of Jesus' day expected their Messiah to come from the lineage of David. They knew that. We, we do this at Christmas time. 
Isaiah 9, 6-7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and, in, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this baby Jesus being born in Bethlehem is going to be from the lineage of David. The, the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to be an earthly descendant. Ezekiel thirty four twenty three. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. One shepherd, David. Now this is written hundreds of years after David has died. So Ezekiel's talking about this one shepherd that's going to come in the future, the Messiah from David's lineage. Now, what have we seen so far in the Gospel of Luke? How does Luke describe the birth of Christ? Luke 1.27, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Joseph was from the house of David. Some scholars actually believe that Mary was from the house of David and she may have been a distant cousin of Joseph. What did the angel also announce? Luke 1.32, He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. How does Paul begin Romans? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul starts out Romans by saying Jesus was a descendant of David. 2 Timothy 2.8 Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And how does the book of Revelation end? How does Jesus describe his second coming? How does Jesus describe himself in the book of Revelation? Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. This Lord, this king that would sit on the throne and make his enemies a footstool, this is none other than Jesus coming from the lineage of David. Jesus would be a real and true man. Physically a man. Physically from the lineage of David. Now, what's the significance of Jesus being fully human? Why make such a big deal about that? Why did Jesus have to come in the flesh and be fully human, absolutely human, truly human? Why did Jesus have to be human? Why are there ancient controversies that denied this, and why are there still things that rage today? Well, let me give you two reasons why Jesus had to be human. Here's the first. Since man sinned, only the penalty for sin could be paid for by a man. Who committed the first sin? A man, Adam. Jesus says the second Adam, a man, had to come and pay for that sin. Think about it this way. Can angels pay for our sins? No, because angels can't relate to us. We're not angels. Can animals pay for our sins? Well, in the Old Testament, it was a type and shadow. 
we have sinned as humans, and thus the only one that can represent us, the only one that can stand in our place, the only one that can, can actually die that death has to be a human, has to be a literal person. But not just any person. The human that has to die has to be sinless, has to be perfect, has to be the spotless Lamb of God. The book of Hebrews teaches a lot about Jesus being fully human and coming to die for our sins as a man. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What did Jesus partake of? Flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus assumed our flesh so that he could die on the cross to pay for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us in every respect. He had to be a man, flesh and blood man, to die for the sins of men. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Not just a mere man, but a sinless man. So that's the first reason. We have sinned, humans, and only a human can come and pay the penalty for the sins that we committed. It had to be a human. But second, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and help us in times of need. This baffles me. Jesus sympathizes with you. Do you know that Jesus got hungry? Jesus cried at a funeral. Jesus got tired. Jesus grieved, just like you and I do. Hebrews 2.18 For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's a discussion for another time. Jesus was tempted from without, not from within, because he was sinless. But he knows what you're going through when you receive temptations. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. And because he knows exactly what you're going through, he gives you permission to draw near and get that help. For you to say, Jesus, I need your help. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're going through. It's foreign to me. No, Jesus says, I know exactly what you're going through because I went through it myself. I know what it's like to experience the death of a loved one. I know what it's like to, to be in a painful, cruel, dark world with all of the sin. I know what it's like. And you know what? I'm there for you. So come and give all your problems to me because I can relate to you and I can help you in your time of weakness and I died for you as a man. And the ultimate issue is that Jesus is the one mediator between sinful men and a holy God. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 
the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the man, the sinless man. Jesus is fully and absolutely man. So that's truth number one. Jesus coming from the lineage of David means that Jesus is fully and absolutely man. He is literally man. But here's the second truth. Truth number two. Jesus is fully and absolutely God. He's fully and truly man, and he's fully and truly God in the same person, without division, without distinction. There it is in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? His son. Now the word Lord there, what I've said all along, can mean king or beloved son. So this is more than just Jesus is a mere physical descendant of David, a man. Jesus takes it one step further and says, listen, what David's arguing from Psalm 110 is that I'm more than just a mere man. Yes, I'm a physical descendant of David. I am fully man, but I'm going beyond that. I'm also God in the flesh. That's why David didn't call me a son. He called me Lord because I am Lord. So what's the significance of Christ being absolutely God? It's important that Jesus be absolutely and fully man. It's also important for Jesus to be absolutely and fully God. Now, we may not be able to wrap our minds around the fact that in the one person of Christ, He is fully and absolutely man, and He's fully and absolutely God. It's kind of like the Trinity. We may not fully understand it, but we've got to believe it. But what's the significance of Jesus being fully God? Let me give you two reasons as well why it's important that Jesus is fully God. First, Jesus was the only one who could offer a sacrifice of infinite value. Yes, a man had to pay for man. And yes, Jesus was sent, but Jesus was the only one who could offer himself as the one of eternal, infinite value. Think about how, think about how worthless and how bankrupt and how spiritually depraved we are. We could never, as humans, offer an acceptable sacrifice to God that would be of any value. Even in a million years, if we tried to pay for our sins, if we tried to do the greatest thing for God, it would not have infinite value because we are mere people. So yes, someone could die in your place, but that's just a mere person. You need a man to die in your place, but not just any old man. You need Jesus who is fully man and fully God because his sacrifice is of infinite value. Because what's the wages of sin? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has to punish sin by death. And the only way that that death or that sin can be paid for is by the death of Christ, who has infinite, eternal value. Only Jesus, as fully God and fully man, can die in our place and give that infinite value that none of us could ever offer God. But here's something second, and it kind of is tied into it. And I know you've been, we've been singing about it, and some of your growth groups have been talking about it this morning. Here's the second reason. Jesus was the only one worthy to bear the wrath of God 
in our place. No mere man can take God's wrath and satisfy it and turn it away so that you can be forgiven. No mere man can do that. Now, Jesus in his flesh did take on God's wrath, but he could only do that because he was fully God. He's the only one that could take that justice, that wrath. Now, here's the thing you need to think about. I want you to think deeply about this. There will be humans who bear God's wrath in hell. There will be humans who can endure God's wrath in hell. But there's no human who can endure God's wrath in such a way to turn it away and bring forgiveness the way that Jesus did. So you're only going to experience the wrath of God in one of two ways. Either you're going to experience it in hell for eternity, or you're going to experience it through Christ who took it for you, and he took it away and forgave you and liberated you through that. I came across an interesting psalm, and I was thinking about this. Psalm 49, 7-9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom another. No man can give his life as a price for God. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, no no mere human man can give your life as a ransom for God, but a man can only if his name is Jesus and he's fully God and fully man. Listen to John Stott. This is a great quote in his book, The Cross of Christ. He talks about what sin is and what substitution on the cross is. Here's what he said. The essence of sin is this. What's the essence of sin? The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts the penalties that belong to man alone. So these aren't just theological truths that you need to understand. Jesus is absolutely God. He's absolutely man. He's fully God. He's fully man. Yes, I can win a theological contest with that. No, here's the important thing. If that were not true, you would not have salvation. You would not go to heaven. You would not have your sins forgiven. He has to be fully man and fully God. But there's a third truth in this passage of Scripture. Yes, Jesus is truly and absolutely man. Jesus is truly and absolutely God. But third, Jesus is fully and absolutely Lord over all. Now, why did Jesus choose Psalm 110? What does it mean? Well, look at the language. Okay, what did Jesus accomplish as fully God and fully man? Jesus came, he died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God. After he died on the cross, he rose again from the grave. And after he rose again, he ascended back up to heaven. And where is Jesus right now? Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven as our one meteor. And one day he's going to come back. And so Jesus takes that and and, and look 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 at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool. Where's Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand. And what's he going to do when he comes back? He's going to make his enemies a footstool. Being at the right hand of God represents power, honor, all authority. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand. It's as if this, after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the father said to Jesus, his son, come back up here and sit down where you're supposed to sit down. And you have all authority and power. And one day I'm going to send you back and you're going to make all your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Where's Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church who is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus has all authority at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, chapter 9, wraps all of these truths we've talked about together into one verse. I love it when that happens. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. A little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. In other words, he was fully man. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. He was a man. But he tasted death. He was fully God. He could absorb the, the wrath of God as fully God. But then where is he now? He's crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of the Father. I said Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So what do you think Peter does on Pentecost, the first Christian sermon? What do you think he stands up and preaches from? Peter's going to stand up and preach from Psalm 110. Listen to what Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 39. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's how Peter ends his sermon by quoting Psalm 110. And then notice what he says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says, listen, 
Jesus has been exalted. This Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus whom you put to death, he's been exalted to the right hand of God. He's the one that David talked about who's seated there and he's going to make his enemies a footstool. And these, these Jewish leaders, these people that are hearing it, they're cut to the heart. They're under intense conviction. They're in anguish over their sin and they cry out, what should we do? We're broken here because we see for the very first time this Christ whom we've, we've crucified, he's Lord above all. What do we do? And Peter says, you need to repent. You need to repent and place all of your trust in this Jesus. And that's the same response that you should have. What do you do? What do you do with this Jesus who's absolutely God, absolutely man, and absolutely Lord of all? What do you do? The only response worthy of the Lord is you too repent and believe. You too submit your life to this Christ. You rest in Him. You receive Him. You bow before Him. My favorite passage of Scripture is Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He went to the cross. He endured God's wrath as fully God, as fully man. And now he's seated at the right hand. And what does the writer of Hebrews tell us to do? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at the world. Look to Jesus. Have your eyes singularly gazed on Jesus. Jesus. We trust in Him. We look to Him. We rest in Him. We fall on our knees before Him. Why? Because He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's absolutely and fully man. He's absolutely and fully God. And He's absolutely Lord of all. And one day He will come back and make all of His enemies His footstool. Because He's the only one worthy to do that. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I just have us to do one thing. Let's do what the writer of Hebrews tells us to do. As we take the supper this morning, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare this morning to take the Lord's Supper. Of all, no ands, ifs, or buts about it whether we make you Lord or confess you a Lord or whatever, it doesn't matter. You are Lord. And you're seated at the right hand with all authority because you won the victory for us in the cross and you won the victory for us in your resurrection and you're calling us now to keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, there's so many places we can look to find significance to find meaning, to find purpose, to find satisfaction. Lord, we look in so many different places, but we fail to look to you. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, would we look to you? Would we celebrate you? Would we honor you? You are the only one worthy of our gaze, of our attention, of our affections, of our love, of our devotion. 
May this just be a sweet time together as a church family where we just can come together around your table and fix our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, thank you for starting our faith and thank you for promising to finish our faith. We love you and we honor you. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. First thing to do is take